Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. This is uh, Paul Axton, and in this uh, podcast, I'll talk about evil. I don't want to phrase it as the problem of evil and set up the, the notion that we can in some way offer a theory or a theodicy that in fact will give us an explanation of evil. Certainly evil is a problem, but the the way in which the problem is solved for us is in and through the cross. And the danger is that if a, a theodicy, which in fact seems to deny in some way in a privation theory that Augustinian theory, of course, talks about that evil is not a, a reality. I don't think Augustine meant it in this way, but in a theodicy, it can explain the presence of evil as a kind of non-entity, or the tendency is to explain it as if it is the cause of a greater good. And so the point of a theodicy is to offer a coherent explanation for the problem of evil as if there is coherence uh, to be found. This is John Milbank's point, and I think it's the Augustinian point, that actually evil has no coherence. It, it doesn't make sense. And so to have a system that, in which evil is made sense of is already to, in fact, in some way do away with the problem. It offers us a narrative in which evil is accounted for as part of the plot of the story. I'm not sure that God himself can tell us a story that makes sense of evil because evil by definition, is nonsense that is unleashed. It is without sense. It's destructive of the story of God, which is the coherent story. And so part of the problem in our understanding of Christianity is that in some way we've missed the explanation or understanding of how the cross can defeat evil. And of course, this is my understanding, is that the cross is aimed at defeating evil, but if we have an inadequate view of evil or an, a substandard view of evil, or in fact if we solve the problem of evil apart from the cross, then those things aren't going to line up. And so if we assign evil to the privation of the will or to the necessity of a, you know, endured in order to have a free will, uh, as has been done in classical theories, it seems, as N.T. Wright indicates, to ignore the diabolical or the Satan-inspired understanding of evil in the Bible. And so the Bible doesn't offer any real explanation for the existence or for the pre-existence of, the, of this evil. Rather than a, a theory of evil or an explanation of evil, the point is the defeat of evil, its undoing, Maybe the comprehension of it is not the point. It's not that the Bible's designed to give us information, as Wright says, to satisfy the inquiring mind. It's written to tell the story of what God has done to defeat evil. But if we misunderstand any part of this, if we have an inadequate understanding of evil, that is often attached to an inadequate understanding of the cross. And so I don't think that any theodicy satisfies. And if it does satisfy, or the implications, well, I think one of the implications is that 
in explaining evil, they imagine the world is okay the way it is, that we've got this explanation, and the explanation serves in place of the cross, and the cross is not really necessary. And so evil and Satan are not so serious. And I'm afraid we lose the, the presence, the real presence of God, because this is where God meets us, is in the defeat of evil, in the midst of suffering. So theologies of the cross, as Wright has said, is they've tended to deal with sin, and sin that is removed from the larger issue of the problem of evil. And people who have written about the problem of evil have not grappled with the, the cross. That is, that we have theology that will talk about sin, and we have philosophy that will talk about the problem of evil. Well, what we need to do is to join those two things together, though, to understand that the cross or the life of Christ, the person and work of Christ, is, is actually defeating, engaging evil. And we're going to understand, I think, what evil is partly through this engagement. And so a great deal of 19th, 20th century thought has really accepted the framework of the Enlightenment in which the Christian faith is really just about delivering people from this world, and they go to heaven, they receive forgiveness, and it's an escape and not a real engagement, either with the reality of this world or the problem of evil or overcoming evil. And so there has been a failure of thought, I think, in describing how it is that evil is overcome and defeated in the cross. As John Milbank has said in Greek and Christian and Jewish thought, evil has been denied any positive foothold in being. It has not been seen as a force or a quality, a real force or a quality, but as the absence of force and quality and as the privation of being itself. This privation theory, I think, can be a kind of failure to understand the, the power of evil. In the end, we need to posit the notion, I'm not advocating or I'm really not even denying a right understanding of privation theory, but I think that we have to posit and look at radical evil, and the radical evil especially of the new atheists, maybe somebody like Alenka Zupanichuk and uh, Slavoj Zizek. David Roberts has put it this way, that in the traditional view of evil, the more evil something is, the further something is from the good, the less existence or actuality it has, and so the more impotent it should be. And of course his point is, well, this is exactly the opposite of our experience. The more evil something is, the more powerful its acts of destruction, the more we feel its actuality. And the more we realize the power before which we tremble is not nothing. This is really the work of Walter Wink, who you know, uh, is describing the powers and the way in which the powers then engage, that they, there is a kind of real palpable presence of evil that is not simply the corporate entity in and of itself. It's something greater than the individual's but that there is a kind of, you know, do you call it a spirit, whatever this thing is. And so a great deal of Walter Wink's work is to point out that the existence of something 
that is very similar, I think, to what has been termed radical evil. Now, I, ironically, the term radical evil first occurs in Immanuel Kant, who is talking about reason and progress, and the point that Kant made, and he refused it, that is, he posits, he coins the term, he says that radical evil is the idea that the will is capable of being diabolical or absolute. And by this, he says, we mean that it is the will is capable not simply of opposing the moral law, but of making this opposition the very nature or the very motive of our actions. If this were so, we would be capable of doing evil simply for the sake of doing evil, not merely for the sake of some profit to ourselves. And so he posits this, he poses this, and in the religion within the limits of reason alone, evil no longer has only this shadowy, unsubstantial existence. Instead, evil appears as a, as a positive fact, firmly rooted in reality. And at this point, it ceases to be a religious or metaphysical problem. It becomes a political, a moral, a pedagogical problem. And so in the analysis of evil offered by postmodernity, especially in the psychoanalytic philosophical orientation of the Lacanian psychoanalysts, evil then is, the reality of evil is posited as, in fact, a first-order power. It's important. Even in, you know, the manipulation that is going to occur in uh, Lacanian psychoanalysis, it's not that one will get rid of this power, but one will manipulate it and direct it. And so there really isn't a solution to the problem. You can't say that there's redemption from the problem. There's only manipulation of the problem. Maybe a, a, in a part more popular level, it was M. Scott Peck, you know, who in The People of the Lie, he suggests that uh, some people can just be taken over by evil. And he does, in the, the name of the book, you know, to believe a lie and then to live by it and forgetting that it is a lie and to make it the foundation of one's being. And so he argues that there is such a thing as a force or forces of evil which are super personal, that are superhuman, which appear to take over humans as individuals or perhaps even entire societies. And of course this sounds a lot like Walter Wink who has argued that in the powers there's uh, corporate institutions that they can take on a kind of soul an identity which is greater than the sum of its parts. And the identity, the spirit of the place, the soul of the place, you know, as we talk about this, it, it sounds more abstract than it actually is in experience, that it tells the parts what to do and how to do it. And this leads to the view that in some of these corporate institutions, you know, whatever we're talking about, industrial, governmental, or churches, that they can be so corrupted with evil that we can actually talk about a kind of possession that functions at a corporate level. And of course, we can think of instances in which a group of people, and it does seem to be corporate, it does seem to work in a group, that we can actually name this evil in a clearer sense.
course, Soren Kierkegaard also posits something very similar to a radical evil. He says that evil does not, a, not pertain to a weakness of the will, a divided will, but as a self-determined free will whose strength and integration is derived from its rebellion against the good. And so radical evil for him is not a privation, it's not a negation, but a position an individual takes before God. Ted Peters has written similarly. I think Ted Peters may mix the metaphors here with radical evil and privation theory. But uh, he says that radical evil, unlike privation theory, acknowledges and identifies a force of evil while it is internalized by humankind, is not original or sustained by humankind alone. And so he refers to the story in Genesis, and she hears the voice, she internalizes it, and then responds to it. And so whether we think in terms of a serpent or Satan, there is a component of experience, a force of evil, that is prior to, antecedent to, and involved in our own action. And so the human spirit is drawn into a kind of estrangement by forces that in some way had become alienated, fallen, before humans were fallen. And maybe the contradiction is that in describing sin and evil using the disease metaphor, human will as a positive participant in sin is excluded, and yet evil is impossibly instigated by will alone. And so privation theory denies that evil is lodged in any reality, power, or being. And evil for the Christian tradition was radically without cause. Indeed, it was not even self-cause. It was the refusal of, of cause, a kind of impossible cause. And in this way, privation theory, it's not an explanation of evil, but is rigorously remains with a kind of inexplicability for explanation. I, I like the inexplicable part of this, but evil is not seen as something in existence. I think that this aspect of it can be misconstrued. Evil is uncaused, there is indeed a sense in which it possesses us like a kind of anti-cause in Milbank's picture and a kind of satanic black hole. Uh, the two far of in Marion, uh, Jean-Luc Marion, talks about the non-existence of the devil as the existence of the devil. Has non-existence here been taken as a kind of positive existence? You know, this is kind of the reification of nothing. The very thing, I think, that, uh, ironically, radical orthodoxy is attacking. And so, I want to turn then to recent philosophers, and I think that in this view, privation theory appears inadequate, because as Roberts talks about, as Wink talks about, evil appears to be, you know, we think of the mass organization of totalitarian control and terror, systematic genocide, and the enslavement of people who are deliberately worked to the point of death and then slaughtered. The Holocaust, and actually the Holocaust, the Jewish Holocaust in Germany, 
is one of several holocausts in the 20th century. And such evil, then, these philosophers argue, cannot be regarded as privative or a privation, because this view claims that evil arises only from the deliberate pursuit of a lesser good. There seems to be something more diabolical, and they will use this language. Uh, and it's interesting to me that the, it's the atheists that are going to reintroduce this notion of the diabolical into discourse. So power directed towards extermination suggests destruction and annihilation are pursued, you know, in very much in the, the way that Kant was thinking of it, perversely for their own sake, as an alternative end in itself. And such an impulse towards the pure negation of being, the cold infliction of suffering, suggests that the will to destroy is a positive and absurd attribute of being itself, and no mere inhibition of being in its plenitude. This is the founding idea here. There really is radical evil. Radical evil is, in Schelling's picture, it's part of the creation force, part of the creator. And so this new view comprehends evil as a positively willed denial of the good, and so as a pure act of perversity without ground. And so I think this understanding, it's Kant posits it. I think this is what Schelling is getting at in his various attempts to write of the coming of God to consciousness. He's going to do that in and through the engagement with a kind of reified nothing. Kierkegaard is going to, to talk this way. And, of course, Heidegger. The place you can go to in Kant himself, uh, interestingly, to affirm the notion of radical evil, is not uh, the place in which he's discussing uh, the notion, but, in fact, back to his categorical imperative. He sought to ground ethics in reason, in Kant's words, it is there I discover that what I, can, I do can only be unconditionally good to the extent that I can will what I have done as a universal law. And he'll call this principle the categorical imperative. Act only according to the maxim by which you can at the same time will that it should become a universal law. What the radical atheists, what Alenka Zupanichik, what Lacan, uh, Zizek are going to point out is, yes, this is actually exactly the place in which radical evil can enter in. But Kant's point is that only an ethics based on such an imperative can be a autonomous. That is, that it's free of all religious, anthropological presuppositions, that only by acting on the basis of such an imperative can an agent be free, truly free. And, of course, the idea here is that if you're going to talk about this freedom, then it can be also a freedom for evil. Such an ethic is based on reason alone and can therefore be distinguished from religion, politics, and etiquette, uh, according to Kant. Kant says, in the appearance of the God-man on earth, it is not that in him which strikes the sense and can be known 
through experience, but rather he is the archetype lying in our reason that we attribute to him, since so far as his example can be known, he is found to conform thereto, which is really the object of saving faith. And such a faith does not differ from the principle of a course of life well-pleasing to God. Uh, that here is the archetype of reason, uh, thus the name of his book, Religion Within the Limits of Reason Alone. And so Kant is reducing the content of the saving work of Christ to a naturally given rational understanding, and then in turn reduces the life of Christ to serving this same rational principle of living a life pleasing to God. Uh, what we're left with is an empty ethic and an empty life of Christ. And this is where the new atheists are going to step in. Uh, Olenka Zupanichik says the Freudian blow to philosophical ethics can be summarized as what philosophy calls the moral law, and more precisely what Kant calls the categorical imperative, is in fact nothing other than, than the superego. You know, in, a, in a Freudian understanding, human morality housed in the superego is immorality. She says, this judgment provokes an effect of disenchantment that calls into question any attempt to base ethics on foundations other than the pathological, in that so far as it has its origins in the constitution of the superego. You know, think here of the Apostle Paul's depiction of what sin and evil are. They are a misorientation to the law that he's going to describe, this perverse orientation. She says, ethics becomes nothing more than a convenient tool for any ideology which may try to pass off its own commandments as the truly authentic, spontaneous, and honorable inclinations of the subject. Jacques Lacan puts a slightly different spin on it, claiming that the moral law looked at more closely is simply desire in its pure state. He's drawing this from Kant. Ethics, he says, in the Critique of Practical Reason, is a respect for something entirely different from life, in comparison and contrast to which life and its enjoyment have absolutely no worth. Man lives only because it is his duty, not because he has the least taste for living. Such is the nature of the genuine drive of pure practical reason. If you're thinking of it in biblical terms, one is given over to the force of the law, and this is the body of death. I think Lacan is describing the, the same concept. Ethics, then, names a drive or a desire that cannot be accounted for in any particular object or content but rather is something that exceeds life. Lacan says, Kant articulates this surplus in terms of form. Lacan will conceptualize it in, in terms of the object, the object petit a. In other words, Kant's ethics describes fallen idolatrous desire, an exponential desire. 
you know, the idea of a, a, a continual pursuit of the object that cannot be obtained. There is no satisfaction. This is the explanation, you know, you, uh, Zupanichik turns to the Marquis de Sade, who illustrates the perverse side this desire can take with the Kantian categorical imperative. He has one of his characters in one of his novels pronounce the, the maxim to murder anyone who gets in his way. He says, with regard to the crime of destroying one's fellow, be persuaded it is purely hallucinatory. Man has not been accorded the power to destroy. He has at best the capacity to alter forms. What difference does it make to her creative hand if this mass of flesh today is reprodu reproduced tomorrow in the guise of a handful of centipedes? This is the law of universal metamorphosis, and murder is simply part of this universal principle. And so in the you know, law of the Marquis de Sade, he could say, indeed, that I would only will that which I would will universally. But what the Marquis de Sade is willing is ultimately pure pleasure. Uh, Yukio Mishima, the right-wing nationalist, he, I think, illustrates this in his own life's journey, how perversity finds its fulfillment in absolute duty. He discovered that by replacing his masochistic imagination, he literally talks about this in Sun and Shield, with duty he could use his imagination against itself. He says, no moment is so dazzling as when everyday imagining concerning death and danger and world destruction are transformed into duty. You take this power of death and it becomes a kind of duty. And of course, that's really the driving force in Mishima. He began to prepare himself to face his own ultimate moment and con he, he describes his concentration on, on death. He says, quote, to keep death in mind from day to day, to focus each moment upon inevitable death, to make sure one's forebodings coincided with one's dreams of glory. Then it was sufficient to transfer to the world of flesh what I had long been doing in the world of spirit. He's preparing to die. He's preparing to kill himself. He would carry out in reality on himself what his fantasies had pictured and he would defeat his imagination by destroying it. This is why Freud calls it moral masochism. It is a neurosis that demands an extreme sense of morality and duty with ever-increasing demands and degrees of sensitivity. Death Mishima says, began from the time when I set about acquiring an existence other than that of words. As Mishima became the object of strength his superego demanded, he became fitted to do the ultimate bidding of the superego. Freud says the masochist must do what is inexpedient. He must act against his own interest. He must ruin the prospects open out to him in the real world and must perhaps destroy his own real existence. And so in The Emperor, Mishima found a father figure worth submitting to absolutely. And according to Freud, in creating this ultra-morality, 
the accent falls on the heightened sadism of the superego to which the ego submits. And by turning from his opportunity to die, you know, or during the World War II, and taking up instead the career of a writer, he had missed the, the security of a kind of fixed identity that he saw in his friends. And he turned to writing, and he describes the writing as being eaten away by words. He says those who died were for, fortunately secure within a fixed identity, an identity established beyond doubt, the tragic identity. Mishima says, at the moment when I first realized that the use of strength and the ensuing fatigue, the sweat and the blood, could reveal to my eyes that sacred, ever-swaying blue sky that the shrine bearers gazed on together and could confer the glorious sense of being the same as others. He always felt to be, to be an outcast. He's describing a scene of seeing the local men carrying the shrine. Uh, in their nakedness. I already had a glorious sense, he says, of being the same as others. I already had a foresight, perhaps, of, of, of that as yet distant day, when I should step beyond the realm of individuality into which I had been driven by words and awaken to the meaning of the glory. And so the image, you know, this is Henry Scott Stokes uh, describing the image of Mishima's head with the headband still secure about it, propped on the blood-soaked carpeted floor of General Mashita's office. He says that remains indelibly in my mind. That powerful head had been torn from its shoulders. Stokes asks, you know, how had Mishima justified his action to himself? His brother said of him after his death, he spent his whole life in an unsuccessful search for himself. And his mother's words to mourners was not to be sad. She said he finally did something he really wanted to do. And she alone was not shocked at his end. And so what we have here is that a, a, a really a categorical imperative that's flipped on its head. The categorical imperative can be used as a kind of radical evil. In Harawas's point, no society can be just or good that is built on falsehood, and isn't it the case that fallen society, inasmuch as it would displace God, has built upon false foundations, and isn't the universal aspect of the gospel, the light and the dark, you know, I will draw all men to myself, aimed at exposing this failure, which might be termed as inclusive of an ethical failure. And of course this is Dietrich Bonhoeffer's point, is that Knowing good and evil is the sign of the consequence of the fall. Being able to work out your own categorical imperative is already a kind of usurpation, a usurping of the place of God. You will be like God, knowing good and evil, and we take ourselves to be the divine arbiter of good and evil. We take the divine role of choosing and become the source of moral decisions rather than the objects of God's choice for us in Bonhoeffer's description. And so to know good and evil, to be ethicists, to choose, these are the marks of our own fallen creaturehood. And so for Bonhoeffer, the entry into ethics is itself a sign of the fall. It's a sign of the nihilistic death drive. Uh, we might say that works itself out from Genesis 3. 
can be demonstrated to be nearing universal proportions and wickedness of the generation of Lamech and Noah. And this may be the place to, to found the moral argument. Isn't this really what Paul's description of morality is in Romans 7? Something on the order of, I do what I do not want to do, that in some way I'm torn, and that as I find duty, as I give myself over to the law completely, that this is my own death, this is my own doing. Uh, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I think that's what he means. You formerly walked according to the course of the, this world, the prince of the power of the air. This is the force. This is a demonic force. This is the sport. You know, however you think of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. He says this is a universal problem. We, too, all formerly lived in the lusts of the flesh. And we, too, were by nature children of wrath. And so moral situations cannot be abstracted from the kind of people we are in Harris's description or the kind of people we hope to become. In fact, the very idea that ethics should be primarily concerned with quandaries or choosing and the kind of decisions that we make, that is, that we become the arbiters of ethics. It reflects our current understanding of ourselves as a kind of people without a history, he says. Situations are not out there waiting to be seen, but are created by the kind of people we are. And so I'll end here, but next time I will return then and talk a little bit then about how it is that once we have in place this, uh, a correct understanding, how we have in place an understanding of evil that in fact has taken its primary place, not as simply a transgression, not as simply something that is a failure or a falling short or a missing the mark that we often define sin, but evil in fact pertains to our very orientation to the law, our very notion of religion. It, 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 it is a part then of our morality, and this is then, I believe, what the cross of Christ is addressing. But I'll come to that next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.